1: You are listening to Radio Eye, your source for printed news and information. This service is intended for listeners who are blind, visually impaired, or have other disabilities that prevent them from reading. All materials are read as written and do not necessarily represent the views and opinions of Radio Eye. For further information about this service, please call 859 422 6390 or Or visit our website at www.radioi.org. That's www.radioeye.org.
0: Welcome to the reading of the Lexington Herald Leader. Today is Saturday. It is the 17th of December, and one week away from Christmas Eve, to which... My family will be coming. I look forward to that. Uh, a reminder, oh your readers are? Gary Danner, and
1: I think it's delightful that our family is coming.
0: Our family's coming. It's not just mine. My family's here. Our family's coming. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. I apologize. It is our family's coming. I'm the one talking so it's mine. But anyhow, um, A reminder that Radio Eye is a reading service intended for those blind with difficulties that make um, holding printed material uncomfortable and with the reminder that the Herald-Leader donates this by its publishers to Radio Eye. So with that, we will start with the WKYT five-day forecast with Chris Bailey. And today will be a high of only 36. What is it outside now, Gary? Uh,
1: 28.
0: 28. It's a high of 36. It's only 28 now, so we only have eight more degrees to go today. High 36, low 22. It is a sun with scattered clouds around it, breezy and colder. Tomorrow, of which we have lessons and carols in the afternoon. It's full sunshine, but a high of 35, low 21, sunny but cold. Monday shows a little sun with three clouds in front of it. High 38, low 27, mostly cloudy. Tuesday is four clouds, no sun. High 40, low 22, cloudy and chilly. And Wednesday looks like today. Sun with three clouds scattered in front. High 33, low 24, sun and clouds. The Almanac temperature-wise, as of Thursday when we read last, the high was 56, normal high 26, last year's high 65, and the record high 72 in 1984. The low was 39, The normal low 30, last year's low 48, the record low minus 8 in 1901. Thursday, the precipitation 0.23 inches, months to date 2.95 inches, normal 2.13 inches. Year to date precipitation 45.10, normal 47.77. Last year to date, we had 55.73 inches, and record for the date was 1.91 inches in 1982. The sun rises at 7.48 a.m., setting at 5.20 p.m. The moon rises at 118 a.m., setting at 1.33 p.m. The new moon is December 23rd, first half, December 29th. The full moon on Epiphany, January 6th, it's when the Magi went, and the last half, January 14th. And the weather trivia. What are Aleolian sounds? These are sounds the wind makes as it encounters objects. <sighs> Gary Mike.
1: Okay. Got it. Recount for Family Court Judge's race is scheduled for January, so writes Taylor Six of the Herald Leader. It's accompanied by a photograph of Carl Devine, who has posted a $70,000 cash bond to pay for a recount in his race against Tiffany Yar for a seat on the bench in the 22nd Judicial Court Six Division. The $70,000 recount has been ordered by Fayette Circuit Court Judge Thomas Travis to take place in the new year to determine the final results for a narrow Fayette County Family Court race in November's election. Carl Devine, who was narrowly defeated in a race for Fayette County Family Court judge by challenger Tiffany Yar, posted the $70,000 bond on December the 9th to pay for a recount. He also filed a court motion that day asking to have the bond amount changed. On Thursday afternoon, a special hearing was held to determine if his motion would be granted and to discuss a fixed date for the recount process to begin. Specifically, the hearing was to show evidence that would determine the actual cost of a recount and more specifics about how the recount would take place. Judge Thomas Travis did not decide to lower the bond of the recount. He stated, that Fayette Clerk Don Bevins, Jr. had to find anywhere between 40 and 50 election officers to conduct the recount. Travis also stated each officer would be paid $25 an hour to help conduct the count. In addition, the recount is scheduled to begin on January the 3rd and last anywhere three to five days. Travis made no determination on whether the count would be done by hand or by machines which was a major point of discussion during the hearing. An order will be issued at a later time to make a final resolution. We want to make sure that we are being transparent, accurate and fair, Travis said. In the November election for the 22nd Judicial Court 6th Division, Yar won by 127 votes. Devine, who was appointed to the seat held by Judge Kathy Stein after her retirement in February, asked Travis to order a recount. At that point, Travis rules that Devine would need to cover the cost of the recount. Bevins, who announced he would be resigning from the office at the end of the year, testified previously that cost estimates, including having a third-party vendor program, provide the voting machine for a recount, as well as staffing and security. Devine's attorney, Scott White, presented an estimate recount cost analysis on Thursday that totaled just under $10,000. White also projected in his analysis that a hand recount would take two days, with 40 individuals working for six to eight hours. He estimated this number of people would total about 72,000 ballots counted in a day and a half. White also gave a similar breakdown over the course of three days, as well as six days for the same amount. White asked for a reduced bond of $15,000 just for some wiggle room. However, Bevins argued that this analysis was a fallacy and not realistic. Bevins was adamant that he would not only prefer a machine recount, but that it would be more accurate than a hand count. However, Devine alleged that in a previous hearing, Bevins made mention that a hand count was the only option going forward. That is not realistic, Bevins said of White's cost analysis. White is forgetting that we have to count and then recount. People make mistakes and it takes time. Anna White's attorney for Yar said that the hearing was purely academic and that time spent determining specifics of the recount went against the benefit of her client as well as family court as a whole. The judge has had to give up her job so long as this lasts. Yar is jobless, White said, and the impact on the persons who should be appealing Appearing before a family court may have to be appearing before transitional judges, however qualified they are. It's hard. She added the idea that any of us could sit down with no experience and say I think you could do ten minute counts seems like guesswork. I think the ballot is set, we've already wasted time looking at the bond. We have wasted hours on this. Every hour that we are not moving towards a resolution is harming the people who come before the court as well as the judge-elect and I'm sure Judge Devine as well. White said in a previous email that she will ask Governor Andy Bashir to nominate Yar to cover family court until the matter is settled so that there is continuity for persons who come before the court after January the 1st. Reporters Carla Ward and Beth Musgrave also contributed to this story. Alice.
0: Also on the front page, uh, an article by David Cantonese with the McClatchy in the District Office, which is part of the Herald-Leader paper. There is a picture of Senator Rand Paul of Kentucky with Senator Rick Scott of Florida and Senator Ron Johnson of Wisconsin, all Republicans, speaking Wednesday during a news conference on spending on Capitol Hill in Washington. And the article is entitled, Paul Again, Clashes with McConnell on Spending. Out of Washington, Rand Paul was just one Of 19 to vote down a one-week band-aid budget agreement necessary to avert a year-end government shutdown. Kentucky's freshly re-elected junior senator was part of an even smaller group of 11 who opposed must-pass legislation to fund the nation's defense. And he's not done objecting this year with Congress forced to return next week to hammer out a long-term budget allocation for 2023. Known in Washington parlance as the omnibus, Paul is promising again to be a loud detractor, once again placing him at odds with his party leader and home state colleague Mitch McConnell. I think my job mainly is to oppose the omnibus said Paul, who is lambasting Republicans for failing to force Democrats to the negotiating table to bring down spending levels. This brings upon us the lie that Republicans really are physically conservative. We have completely and totally abdicated the power of the purse. Republicans are emasculated, they have no power, and they are unwilling to gain that power back, Paul told Larry Kudlow during an appearance on Fox News this week. McConnell, who voted for both the short-term budget extension and the $858 billion National Defense Authorization Act, will be crucial in getting 10 Republican senators on board for next week's omnibus vote. But Paul is attempting to marshal 41 Republicans against it, which would prevent Democrats from securing the 60 votes the bill requires for passage. All it takes is 41 people to stand up, be men and women, and say, No more. We're not going to do it. We've had enough. We're as mad as hell. The deficit's eating us alive. Inflation's eating us alive. And we're not voting for an omnibus, Paul said on Fox News. Paul has allies on the right flank of his conference, but it's unlikely he'll be able to muster 41. Wisconsin Senator Ron Johnson complained that McConnell is trying to coerce Republicans to get on board with the 1700000000000 trillion all-encompassing package. Senator Mike Lee of Utah also questioned why Republican leadership would provide 10 GOP votes for the Democrats bill. They can't do this without at least 10 Republicans in the Senate. I don't know why any Republican, let alone 10, would want to help them, he said, according to the Washington Times. Paul ideally wants to force Democrats to break up the omnibus into 12 separate spending bills in different areas and withhold GOP votes for a few of them in order to attain spending concessions. We don't like 87,000 new IRS agents to harass the middle class. We shouldn't find it, but the only way we'll defeat it is if we do the funding the way it's supposed to be done. Budget, 12 spending bills and then we put policy changes that our voters and our supporters want on the individual bills, and then we debate each individual bill, Paul said at the news conference earlier this month. But that would take considerable time, and lawmakers are up against another deadline of next Friday. What's more is the bill also has to clear the House, where Republicans in the lower chamber are already blaming McConnell for the deal. Mitch McConnell is on the verge of taking away House Republicans' power of the purse next year by making a dirty deal with the Dems to pass a dim omnibus bill, tweeted Rep. Marjorie Taylor Greene. She wants McConnell to only agree to another short-term deal to allow the new House GOP majority in January to negotiate broader spending allocations. What the hell are State Republic or Senate Republicans doing? complained conservative radio host Mark Levin, a consistent McConnell critic. McConnell talks about quality candidates. We need a quality GOP Senate leader and quality GOP senators, not these fools. How far Paul will go next week to potentially block an omnibus? On Capitol Hill on Thursday, Paul indicated the risk that leadership would plan on shifting all the blame to conservatives if there's a pre-Christmas government shutdown. McConnell reiterated the hard deadline to pass an omnibus next Thursday, but if enough of his 50-member caucus defects, he said he would pivot to supporting another short-term agreement. This scenario would amount to a win for Paul and fiscal conservatives, who would see another day to fight for their long-sought spending cuts in early 2023.
1: Gary. Well, I think that covers the local news. So I'm going to move over to the opinion page before we circle back. Eugene Robinson of the Washington Post writes a piece entitled, In New Scramble for Africa, Africans Must Come First. Much of this century's history will be written in Africa. The summit President Biden hosted this week with 50 leaders from across the continent is an overdue acknowledgement of that fact. When Africa succeeds, the United States succeeds, Biden said Wednesday in a keynote address to the gathering. Quite frankly, the whole world succeeds as well. But in this new scramble for Africa, success should be defined by Africans themselves. And investing in the continent can't mean simply importing American values. It requires recognizing the achievements and the seismic shifts that are already underway on the continent. The case for Africa's rising significance is undeniable. By 2050, according to United States, United Nations projections, Africa will be home to one-fourth of the world's population. By 2075... That fraction will have risen to one-third, and by 2100, the list of the ten most populous nations on earth will include Nigeria, the Democratic Republic of the Congo, Ethiopia, Tanzania, and Egypt. No wonder countries such as China have invested heavily in relationship building on the continent, particularly. Through beijing's belt and road development initiatives that have helped improve many nations infrastructure from ports to railroads and hydropower biden's u.s africa leader summit in which he promised 55 billion in u.s investments in africa over the next three years as initial proof that the united states is all in on africa's future but this new race for influence needs to be about more than who gets to extract and exploit the continent's resources. It has to be about lifting hundreds of millions of Africans into the global middle class and beyond and treating African leaders as real partners. That is where the United States has an advantage over Beijing and Moscow. Those countries are funding the nuts and bolts of a modern economy. But the United States is far better positioned to help with human in societal infrastructure, health, education, and good government that move a nation from subsistence to flourishing. The summit amply demonstrated the challenges involved in resetting the relationship between these former colonies and the new imperial powers eager to influence them. Biden held a private meeting with six leaders whose nations will hold elections in 2023 President Felix Tashiki of the DRC, Democratic Republic of the Congo, Ali Bongo Ondimba of Gabon, George Manahui of Liberia, Andre Nina of Madagascar, Muhammadu Buhari of Nigeria, Nigeria and Julius Ma Bio of Sierra Leone to discuss later, dangers such as foreign interference and political violence. The Biden administration plans to spend 165 million to support elections and good governance in Africa next year. In nations across the continent, however, citizens are already demanding more transparency and accountability from their leaders. South African President Cyril Ramaphosa, who did not attend the summit, is fighting for his political survival amid allegations that he hid at least $580,000 in cash of unknown providence in a sofa in his game ranch. Hosa survived an impeachment vote on Tuesday, but still faces challenge to his leadership of his party, the African National Congress. African nations are also confronting a massive wave of urbanization impelled by rising living standards, agricultural mechanization, and climate change. Cities such as Lagos, Nairobi, Dar es Salaam are becoming mega sorely in need of adequate housing, rapid transit, and other expensive infrastructure. The challenges are huge, but so are the opportunities to experiment with new approaches the housing design and public transportation that can be models for more developed countries. African leaders are well aware that they are objects of competition. Rwandan President Paul Kagame said that his country and others will not be bullied into making choices between the United States and China, nor should they be. It is in the interest of the United States, China and the European Union to invest in African nations and speed their development. This new scramble must not be done for two Africans, but with them and for them. Alice.
0: Ah. The second opinion is, wait a minute, I'm not able to get there, okay. Republicans are coming for ESG investing. Oh, and before I do that, I just want to say we're proud that our granddaughter, was able to be part of that African summit at the State Department as a freshman in college in Washington. And uh, we look forward to seeing her next week and hearing all about it. Again, Republicans are coming for ESG investing by Ramesh Ponuru of the Bloomberg Opinion. Republican complaints about ESG investing have been building in recent years. But they have not always been clear about what they want to do about it besides complain. The whole concept of ESG investing, which puts great weight on environmental, social, and corporate governance considerations when allocating capital, can be amorphous. I guess ESG is environmental, social, and governance investing. And for good reasons and bad, Republicans are reluctant to have the government interfere in the workings of capital markets. They still don't have a complete answer, which is probably just as well. But come January, when they will control the House, they will be able to do more than complain. I spoke last week to Representative Andy Barr of Kentucky, one of the top Republicans on the House Financial Services Committee. Barr rejects the notion that ESG investing is simply the market at work. He says it's a distortion of the natural flow of capital. What it is doing is steering investors, in many cases unwittingly, to higher fee, low return and less diversified investments. He incites a recent study that found that only 24% of investors could correctly define ESG investing and only 21% knew what ESG stood for, adding, anecdotally, I, found this my, I find this myself when I talk to broker-dealers and investors in Central Kentucky. He does make one concession to ESG. Investors have the private property right to allocate their capital however they want, and if they want to invest in a way that sacrifices return for some political reason, that's their decision. But only if that is their decision. Barr detects a principal agent problem when assets managers decide on their own to sacrifice owners' returns for non pecuniary reasons like ESG. Barr is similarly skeptical of claims that there is no trade off between ESG goals and returns. Global ESG funds have underperformed the market by 250 basis points per year, he notes. The Security and Exchange Commission has proposed requiring companies to disclose their climate risks, which he considers a way of steering investors toward ESG investments. Instead, he would like to see a requirement for investment advisors, or managers, to disclose to the investor, the owner of the capital, that this fund is not designed to maximize returns. It will sacrifice returns to protect the planet or promote animal welfare or whatever. There needs to be informed consent that the investor is okay with earning lower returns in favor of those social or political goals. Barr is working on a bill, the ESG Act, that would make investment advisors and pension plans put their beneficiaries' pecuniary interests first unless they say otherwise. Current law says that investments would have to be made solely for the beneficiary's interest, but does not specify it's for their financial interest. Other Republicans have a different idea for combating ESG. They want to push proxy voting down from asset managers to their beneficiaries. Barr likes the idea in principle, but notes that the large number of investors in some funds makes it a challenge to implement. Barr is well aware that with the Democrats controlling the Senate and the White House, Republicans can more easily investigate than legislate, so expect a series of hearings related to ESG. Barr also expects hearings where asset managers themselves will be asked to explain the extent to which their ESG strategies are in conflict with the interest of the actual owners of that capital. The asset managers might be looking forward to those hearings a bit less eagerly than the Congressman is. Gary.
1: Well, I'm not supposed to do this, but (laughs) 26 years in the business, that's nonsense. But anyway, that's another long story about... Gary, no, no. ...choice. Anyway, a piece by Alison Schrager of the Bloomberg Opinion. Harry and Meghan and the Perils of Superstar Culture. One of the reasons the public is obsessed with Harry and Meghan is that they represent an important economic trend that resonates well beyond the British royal family. The rising tension between individual branding and the power and prestige of being part of an institution. And it's not just the royals. It's an issue for all industry in the past. If money and security and status were what you craved, your path was clear. You got a job at the most prestigious institution you could and became a valuable team player. This meant giving up part of your identity. You wouldn't be well known to people outside your field or probably even within the company. To a large extent, this was the relic of the last stage of industrial et- industrialization the man in the gray flannel suit era. Back then, stars were for the movies, and office work involved keeping your head down and dedicating yourself to the advancement of the institution. In exchange for your fealty, you received a small share of the institution's success and prestige. This is reversed in our current economy. There are fewer movie stars, but more high-profile people in all other industries. For the film industry, It was a symbiotic relationship that relied on stars to pull people into theaters. But the dynamic is causing problems for other industries because it creates tension between being a star and being a good institutional team player. This dynamic has been particularly noticeable in the media industry. Young up-and-coming journalists want to build their brand on social media by airing provocative opinions while also enjoying the resources and privilege of the world-renowned media companies that employ them. That's a perilous proposition for their employers. After all, the New York Times or the Washington Post have spent many decades building their reputation for top-tier journalism, and the majority of journalists there still do careful, thoughtful work without chasing after the limelight. But, for better or worse, These institutions are now associated with the high-profile social media antics of a few of their reporters who have leveraged their employer status to become big stars independently. You can't entirely blame the reporters for wanting to elevate their own names and reputations. The media industry doesn't offer the same security it once did, and building your own brand means more job security. And it's not just happening in the media. Many industries reward superstars. They get higher salaries, fame, and can monetize their own brand while everyone else is left behind. This is seen in industries from academia to public health and even banking and the British royal family. It's always been true that marketing yourself is necessary to get ahead. The difference now is that instead of it happening through internal politics, people are doing it on a wider stage often beyond their firm, and even beyond their entire industry. Our modern economy not only rewards the stars by paying them a bigger premium, it also makes self-promotion easier. Social media has democratized attention and notoriety for those who crave it. In theory, superstars become superstars because they're more productive and talented, rather than just because they're good at social media. But there's evidence that superstars in the office can mean less pay for everyone else, which suggests any productivity improvement they bring doesn't fully cover their higher salary. The royal family may be damaged by the self-promotion of Prince Harry and his wife Meghan, but the monarchy will probably survive. That's not necessarily guaranteed for every company. When people were dedicated to building institutions they worked in exchange for stability and prestige. Now, stars they co-opt the institution can capture more of the gains for their own brands. How long can this last? Soon, everyone will be forced to look out for themselves, and institutions won't have the same value anymore. Or, this will pass. It's notable that superstars are becoming less common in one industry, where they make the most sense, moving. And eventually, stars become too expensive and aren't worth hiring or cultivating. That could.
0: It's time to turn to the obituaries, of which we have three, and all three have full obituaries themselves. As Gary pointed out, those in bold have an obituary, and those that aren't in bold are just death notices. But these three are true obituaries. Um, oh, if you want them read to you, please call on Monday or Tuesday at 422-6390 and... Somebody, Bill, Lucy, or who's there, will read it for you. William Prather Curlin, Jr., 89, of Frankfurt. Bonnie Joe Johnson, 74, of Lexington. And Robert Joseph Zerkowski, 89, of Nicholasville. Those three have obits, and indeed, if you wish to um, hear them, please call the office. Gary.
1: Turning now back to the front page and picking up the national news, Uh, there's a piece that's headlined, Starbucks workers start three-day walkout in some stores. There's a photograph taken by Carol Mussel of the Associated Press of uh, four folks standing in line or standing out in the snow holding signs saying, On strike for unfair labor practice. No contract, no coffee, etc. So, The caption, of course, reads, Starbucks workers and supporters in St. Anthony, Minnesota, hence the snow on the ground, hold signs Friday at the start of a planned three-day strike. The article is by Deanne Durbin of the Associated Press. Starbucks workers at locations scattered around the U.S. on Friday began a strike that is planned to last through the weekend as part of their effort to unionize the coffee chain stores. More than a 1,000 baristas at 100 stores were planning to walk out, according to Starbucks Workers United, the labor group organizing the effort. The strike would be the longest in the three-year-old unionizing campaign. There are more than 9,000 company-owned Starbucks stores, so most of them will likely be unaffected. The union said it expects the strikes will shutter some stores entirely, and others will Managers or other workers may keep the stores open. This is the second major strike in a month by Starbucks U.S. workers. On November the 17th, workers at 110 Starbucks held a one-day walkout. That effort coincided with Starbucks' annual Red Cup Day when the company gives reusable cups to customers who order a holiday drink. More than 264 Starbucks' 9,000 company-run stores have voted to unionize since late last year. Starbucks opposes unionization effort, saying the company functions better when it works directly with employees. But the company said last month that it respects employees' lawful right to protest. Tori Tambolini, a former Starbucks shift supervisor and union organizer who was fired in July, that she will be picketing in Pittsburgh this weekend. Tambolini said workers are protesting understaffed stores poor management and what she calls Starbucks' scorched-earth method of union-busting, including closing stores that have unionized. Workers United noted that Starbucks recently closed the first store to unionize in Seattle, the company's hometown. Starbucks has said the store was closed for safety reasons. Starbucks and the union have begun contract talks about 50 stores, but no agreements have been reached. The process has been contentious. According to the National Labor Relations Board, Workers United has filed at least 446 unfair labor practice charges against Starbucks since late last year, including that the company fired labor organizers and refused to bargain. The company, meanwhile, has filed 47 charges against the union, among them, allegations that it defied bargaining rules went recorded sessions and hosted recordings online. So far, the labor disputes haven't appeared to dent Starbucks sales. Starbucks said in November that its revenue rose 3% to a record $8.41 billion in the July to September period. Alice. Also on
0: the front page, Russia launches one of its most intense attacks against Kyiv. There's a picture by Ivigeny Malutka of the AP of the Ukrainian State Emergency Service firefighters clearing the rubble at a building that was destroyed Friday by a Russian attack in, um, Krikivria, Ukraine. This is by Anna Arova, Vasilia Stepanenko, and Jamie Keaton, all of the Associated Press, out of Kyiv, Ukraine. Ukraine's capital came under one of the biggest attacks of the war on Friday as Russia's invading forces fired dozens of missiles across the country, triggering widespread emergency power outages, Ukrainian officials said. Gunfire from air defense systems and thudding explosions combined with the wail of air raid sirens as the barrage targeted critical infrastructure in cities including Kiev, Kharkiv, Rih, and Zaporizhia. The head of the Ukrainian Armed Forces said they intercepted 60 of 76 missiles launched. My beautiful sunshine, what am I going to do without you? wailed Svetlana Andreychuk in the arms of Red Cross staffers. Her sister Ola was one of the le- least three people killed when a missile slammed into a four-story apartment building in Krikiv. Greece She was so cheerful in life. She was a beauty. She helped everybody. She gave advice to everybody. How I love you so, said Andreychuk. Russian strikes on electricity and water systems have occurred intermittently since mid-October, increasing the suffering of the population as winter approaches. But the Ukrainian military has reported increasing success in shooting down incoming rockets and explosive drones. Friday's attacks took place after the United States this week agreed to give a Patriot missile battery to Ukraine to boost the country's defense. Russia's foreign ministry warned Thursday that the sophisticated system and any crews accompanying it would be a legitimate target for the Russian military. The U.S. also pledged last month to send $53 million in energy-related equipment to help Ukraine withstand the attacks on its infrastructure. John Kirby, spokesman for the White House National Security Council, said Friday that the first tranche of that aid had arrived in the country. More than half of the Russian missiles fired Friday targeted Ukraine's capital. The city administration said Kyiv withstood one of the biggest rocket attacks it has faced since Russia invaded Ukraine nearly 10 months ago. Ukrainian air defense shot down 37 of about 40 missiles that entered the city's airspace, and one person was injured, it said. Ukraine's Air Force said Russian forces fired cruise missiles from the Admiral Makarov frigate in the Black Sea, while KH-22 cruise missiles were fired from long-range Tu-22M-3 bombers over the Sea of Azov and tactical aircraft-fired guided missiles. In Ri, President Volodymyr Zelensky's hometown in central Ukraine, the apartment building hit by a missile had a gaping hole in its upper floors. Along with the three people killed, at least 13 were taken to the hospital, said Igor Karolin, deputy head of the city's emergency services. Rescue teams with sniffer dogs searched through the debris for a missing mother and her 18-month-old child. Also at Kri Kivri, nearly 600 miners were stuck underground because of the missile strikes and were being rescued, Mayor Olekasandra Vilkul said on state TV. Vilkul said about 250 of them had been rescued and the operation was continuing. He said several energy infrastructure facilities were completely destroyed. State owned grid operator Yurin Nurgo wrote on Facebook that priority in restoring power across Ukraine was being given to critical infrastructure, including hospitals, water supply facilities, heat supply facilities, and sewage treatment plants. Friday's attack was the ninth of missile strikes on energy facilities. The restoration of power supply may take longer than before, Yurginco said. And because of the repeated, said that because of the repeated damage, analysts have said Russian strikes targeting energy infrastructure are part of an attempt to freeze Ukrainians into submission. After battlefield losses by Russian forces, experts say that has only strengthened the resolve of Ukrainians to resist Russia's invasion. While Moscow tries to buy time for a possible offensive in coming months after the current battlefield stalemate. Kharkiv Regional Governor Ole Sinyehubov reported three strikes Friday on critical infrastructure in that city, Ukraine's second largest. By evening, about 55% of the city had its electricity restored. The southeastern city of Zaporizhia and its surrounding region were hit by 21 rockets, City Council Secretary Anatoly Kurtiv said. There were no initial reports of injuries. In Kiev, Mayor Vitaly Kalchenko reported explosions in at least four districts there. Subway services in Kiev were suspended, he said, as residents sought shelter in its tunnels. Ooh, it's coming up here. Gary.
1: Matt O'Brien of the Associated Press writes, Twitter suspends journalist who wrote about Musk. Twitter suspended the accounts of several journalists who cover the social media platform, the latest battle over what can and cannot be said of the site since billionaire Elon Musk took control of it. Twitter suspended the accounts of several journalists who cover the social media platform, the latest battle over what can and can't be said since Musk took control of it. Oh, that paragraph was repeated. Sorry about that. It was written that way. Accounts of reporters with the New York Times, Washington Post, CNN, Voice of America, and other publications went dark Thursday. The company hasn't explained to the journalists why it took down the accounts and made their profiles and past tweets disappear. But Musk took to Twitter on Thursday night to accuse journalists of sharing private information about his whereabouts that he described as basically assassination coordinates. He provided no evidence for the claim. The sudden suspension of news reporters followed Musk's decision Wednesday to permanently ban an account that automatically tracked the flights of his private jet using publicly available data. That also led Twitter to change its rules for all users to prohibit the sharing of another person's current location without their consent. Several of the reporters suspended Thursday night had been writing about the new policy and Musk's rationale for imposing it, which involved his allegation about a stalking incident he said affected his family on Tuesday night in Los Angeles. The official account for Mastodon, a decentralized social network built as an alternative to Twitter, was also banned. The reason was unclear, though it had tweeted about the jet-tracking account. Some doxing rules apply to journalists. Same doxing rules apply to journalists. As to everyone else, must read a Thursday. He later added, Criticizing me all day long is totally fine, but doxing my real-time location and endangering my family is not. Doxing refers to disclosing online someone's identity, address, or other personal details. The Washington Post executive editor, Sally Busby, called for technology reporter Drew Harrell's Twitter account to be reinstated immediately. The suspension directly undermines Elon Musk's claim that he intends to run Twitter as a platform dedicated to free speech, Busby wrote. Harwell was banished without warning. Process or explanation following the publication of his accurate reporting about Musk." CNN said in the statement that the impulsive and unjustified suspension of a number of reporters, including CNN's Donnie O'Sullivan, is concerning but not surprising. Twitter's increasingly instability and volatility should be one of credible concern for everyone who uses Twitter, CNN statement added. We have asked Twitter for an explanation and we will reevaluate our relationship based on that response. Late Thursday, Musk briefly joined a Twitter Spaces conference chat that hosted by journalist Kate Nathapopoulos of BuzzFeed. Musk stood by the suspension saying, you dox, you get suspended. End of story. He abruptly left the conversation, and a short time later, Twitter Spaces seemed to grow unstable, and then went
0: offline. Alice... Well, going into the paper, Judge warned of gay bar attackers' shootout plans by Jesse Bedion and Matthew Brown of the Associated Press. A judge who dismissed a 2021 kidnapping case against the Colorado Gay Nightclub shooter warned last year that the defendant had been stockpiling weapons and planning a shootout and needed mental health treatment or it's going to be so bad. The comments made by Judge Robin Chittum in August last year are contained in court documents obtained by the Associated Press. They add to the warning signs authorities had about Anderson Aldrich's increasingly violent behavior and raise more questions about whether enough was done to stop the recent mass shooting at Club Q in Colorado Springs. Five people were killed and 17 wounded in the November 19th attack. Aldrich was charged last week with 305 criminal counts, including hate crimes and murder. Aldrich's public defender, Mike, has declined to talk about the case under Colorado judiciary rules. The judge's comments came during a preliminary hearing on charges that Aldrich kidnapped their grandparents, and had previously been under a court seal that was lifted last week. Gary, Mike, you clearly have been I'm on, okay, off. You clearly have been planning for something else. Chittam told Aldrich during the hearing after the defendant testified about an affinity for shooting firearms and a history of mental health problems. It said. I'm going back. The judge's comments came during a preliminary hearing on charges that Aldrich kidnapped their grandparents. I think they mean Aldrich kidnapped his grandparents and had previously been under a court seal that was lifted last week. I think it's his grandparents. He had an affinity for shooting firearms and a history of mental health problems. It didn't have to do with your grandma and grandpa it was saving all those firearms and trying to make this bomb and making statements about other people being involved in some sort of shootout and a huge thing and then that's kind of what it turned into the judge said Chittam's assistant chad d said friday that the judge declined to comment the 2021 charges against aldrich who had stockpiled and explosives and allegedly spoke of plans to become the next mass killer before engaging in an armed standoff with SWAT teams, were thrown at during a four-minute hearing this past July at which the prosecution didn't even argue to keep the case active. Chittum, who received a letter last year from relatives of the grandparents warning that Aldrich was certain to commit murder if freed, granted defense attorneys emotions to dismiss the case because the deadline was looming to bring it to trial. There was no discussion at the July hearing about Aldrich's mental health treatment, violent past, or exploring options to compel Aldrich's grandparents and mother to testify. Details of the failed 2021 prosecution, laid out in 13 court hearing transcripts obtained by the Associated Press, paint a picture of potential missteps in the case. During the 2021 standoff, Aldrich allegedly told the frightened grandparents about firearms and bomb-making material in the basement of the home they all shared. Aldrich vowed not to let the grandparents interfere with plans to go out in a blaze. Aldrich, who is non-binary and uses they-them pronouns, according to defense attorneys, live-streamed on Facebook a subsequent confrontation with SWAT teams at the house of their mother, Laurel Vopel. Oh, that's the binary, meaning Aldrich is their grandparents. Okay. Of their mother, Laura Voble, where the defendant eventually surrendered, was arrested and had weapons seized. The FBI had received a tip on Aldrich a day before the threat, but closed out the case just weeks later, and no federal charges were filed. By August 2021, when Aldrich bonded out of jail, The grandparents were describing the suspect as a sweet young person, according to District Attorney Michael Allen. At two subsequent hearings that fall, defense attorneys described how Aldrich was attending therapy sessions for trauma, PTSD, and mental health, and was on lethargy-inducing medications, the transcripts show. In an October 2021 courtroom exchange, Chittum told Aldrich to hang in there with the meds. It's an adjustment period for sure, Aldrich replied, to which the judge replied, yeah, it will settle, don't worry, good luck. The case had been headed toward a plea agreement early this year, but fell apart after family members stopped cooperating and prosecutors failed to successfully serve a subpoena to testify to Aldrich's 69-year-old grandmother, who was bedridden in Florida.
1: Gary. Well a piece out of the Mercury News in San Jose, California by Ethan Varian, and the headline reads Crop Disease sends California lettuce price as high as ten dollars and ninety nine cents a head. The article reads Don't look now. The price of lettuce is soaring across the Bay Area. It's five dollars cent ninety-nine cents for a head of romaine and Country Sun Natural Foods in Palo Alto. Nearly $10 for the little gem lettuce at Drager's Market in Los Altos. And a whopping $10.99 for Iceberg in Piedmont Grocery in Oakland. Nationwide, the average cost of the head of romaine is currently just $2.50, according to federal data. But that's still a 47% jump from October. Produce prices can vary widely across regions and even individual stores due to a range of factors, including local seasonal growth growing trends and the contracts grocers can negotiate with farmers and suppliers. The reason for the spike is not just inflation, supply chain problems. Crop disease is ravaging lettuce fields in Salinas County Valley, the salad bowl of the world as it's known. Causing a shortage across the country. And as farmers and researchers desperately search for a remedy for the insect spread virus, shoppers, grocers, and restaurant owners are left to face the sticky sticker shock. $7 for a head of lettuce, iceberg lettuce, not the fancy stuff, said Candace Schwab in disbelief as she pushed her chopping cart down the produce aisle at high end Dragners. It's outrageous. Gourmet grocery shoppers aren't the only ones feeling the pinch. Last month, Taco Bell and Chick-fil-A warned customers that they wouldn't be able to prepare some orders due to the shortage. Panera and Chipotle also said they were impacted. Abdul Alwananala, produce manager at the Real Produce International Market in Palo Alto, said the shortage means he's now selling heads of romaine and iceberg for essentially the same $5 price at which he buys them. Around Thanksgiving, supply got so low, the family-owned market struggled to keep lettuce in stock. We're able to supply all of it now. It's just the price is insane, and Anahalwa said, adding he doesn't want to burden shoppers with significantly higher costs for a produce staple. Deals can still be found. At Sprouts Market, in Farmer's at sprouts farmers market on prospect road in san jose for example a head of iceberg is going for just $2.29 the price was roughly the same at whole foods in palo alto for salinas valley salinas valley farmers who grow more than half of the nation's lettuce totaling over a billion dollars a year in value the higher prices aren't translating into more revenue Many have seen their fields entirely decimated by the virus this year, according to Norm Groot, Executive Director of the Monterey County Farm Bureau. The disease came as the local agricultural economy was already grappling with inflation, supply chain disruptions, and labor shortages. It all adds up and really impacts the bottom line very harshly, Groot said Alice.
0: I turn to the extra, extra section today. And on the front page of the extra, extra section, the headline is Frigid Air Poised to Invade U.S. During Christmas Week with Possible Snowstorm. And there's a picture of Mark Kalbig shoveling snow off a sidewalk Thursday in Duluth, Minnesota after a second round of snowstorm passed through. And that's by Holden Law of the Associated Press, and uh, the gentleman looks like he has more snow than I want to think about. The article is by Matthew Capucci and Jason Sainow, or now of the Washington Post. Weather models are in strong agreement that blast of frigid air will plunge into the Northern Plains, Midwest, and Eastern United States in the days leading up to Christmas. Some of this air, 30 or more degrees below average, might be the coldest in late December in at least two decades. At the same time, there are increasing odds of significant winter storminess in the eastern half of the nation between Wednesday and Christmas Eve. While far from a lock, Mother Nature may deliver a white Christmas for a swath of the Midwest and eastern United States. The frigid weather and possibility of snow will coincide with a peak time for holiday travelers. At roughly a week out, it's not possible to forecast exactly where a storm might form and what areas will see snow or rain or remain dry. But between December 22nd and 24th, the chance of significant storm between the Midwest and East Coast is above normal. The primary setup for a potential outbreak of wintry weather involves strong high-pressure building over the eastern Pacific Ocean toward the Alaskan or Alaska Aleutian Islands. That high acts as a force field deflecting the jet stream around it. The jet, which separates frigid and more mild air, will bulge toward the Arctic Circle in central North America before crashing southward over the central and eastern United States. We can glance at a model of the trajectories of air parcels in the atmosphere for clues about the origins of next week's air mass. If we run the model for Christmas Eve in the Midwest, it traces the air back to Nunavut, Canada, between the Northwest Passages and Baffin Bay, adjacent to Greenland. How cold will it get? The initial blast of cold will drive southward into the northern Rockies and northern plains on Monday and Tuesday, reaching the Great Lakes Tuesday into Wednesday. Some of the coldest areas near the border with Canada could see temperatures 30 to 40 degrees below normal, meaning highs around minus 10 and lows from minus 20 to minus 30. (sighs) Sub zero temperatures could reach as far south as the central plains. The core of the cold will probably remain over the north central United States through midweek, although temperatures 10 to 20 degrees below normal could reach parts of the south and the eastern United States late in the work week. A second, reinforcing blast of cold may dive into the northern plains and upper Midwest Wednesday and Thursday pushing air even farther south and east. Minneapolis could expect lows well below zero, while Chicago may see highs only in the teens for much of the second half of next week. By Christmas Eve and Christmas Day, much of the eastern half of the country may see temperatures 10 to 30 degrees below normal. There are signs a third shot of frigid air could enter the northern plains around Christmas Day before barreling south and eastward about 10 days from now. The National Weather Service's Climate Prediction Center places high odds of below average temperatures in the central and eastern states both 6 to 10 and 8 to 14 days into the future. What's the snow potential? The potential for snowfall will stretch from the plains to the east coast during the second half of next week. Here's what we know. The central states. As the jet stream dives south over the plains, a disturbance embedded within that flow could cause some snow to break out over the central and northern plains before sweeping across the Midwest and Tennessee and Ohio valleys. The exact of track of any disturbance is still unclear, as is the location of the rain-snow transition line. The timing would probably be around Wednesday into Thursday. Mid-Atlantic and Northeast The disturbance that could bring snow to the central states could evolve into a major East Coast storm. It would have plenty of jet stream energy to feed off and could draw abundant moisture from the Atlantic Ocean. However, it's still highly uncertain if and where a coastal storm might form and what areas will be hit hardest. The timing of this storm would probably be between Thursday and Christmas Eve. Qualifiers It's important to remember the approximate timeline with which meteorologists can Cast predictions, understanding that the first blast of cold is still three days away and the possibility of a storm five to seven days away. At seven to ten days in advance, forecasters can identify large-scale patterns favorable for cold or warm air outbreaks and big storms. That means estimating the approximate shape of the jet stream, which would offer insight into temperature trends and where storms might form. At five to seven days in advance, forecasters can start estimating temperature differences from normal. That's why they can say, for instance, that the impending air mass over the plains has the potential to be 30 degrees or more colder than average. They can also begin spotting the ingredients needed to make a storm, but can't tell yet whether they'll overlap just right. At three to five days in advance, Forecasters can provide a prediction of high and low temperatures with adequate accuracy for planning purposes. They can also tell if a storm will form and gauge roughly how strong it will be. They might also be able to determine where, within 100 miles or so in either direction, a storm will track. They can't yet reliably give forecasts of specific rain or snow totals because small shifts in the track could markedly change those amounts. At one to two days in advance, forecasters will know where the storm will go and about how much rain or snow will fall, how bad the winds will be, and how long it will last. They can provide specific snowfall forecasts and guidance for planning purposes. On the day of, forecasters can identify mesoscale influences or gauge how smaller scale, about the size of a few counties, features will locally affect conditions. That might mean pinpointing where a 10-mile-wide stubborn snow band will set up or where the greatest tornado risk of an afternoon might be. Whew! Well, as long as that doesn't affect my children arriving from California on the 24th, I hope they're coming the southern route, but then again, the tornadoes... Oh, Lord, just goodness. Gary?
1: Well, don't forget the Houston and south, South Southern... California folks who are probably not going to be as well prepared. I told them all to bring their long johns. Anyway, the yeah, piece Livingston of the Washington Post uh, is entitled, By the Numbers, Coast to Coast Storm Leaves Few Places Untouched. And it's accompanied by a photograph that I recognize. It's a photograph of downtown Deadwood, South Dakota on Thursday. And it's of a snow-covered street because they got 48 inches of rain, of snow, 48 inches of snow. And the photo was provided by the historic Bullock hotel manager, Vicki Weekly. And I know that, I recognize that immediately because many, many years ago, I and a friend of mine on a motorcycle trip stopped there and had a cup of coffee. A massive, slow moving storm. There wasn't any snow on the ground, obviously, at that point. A massive snow-moving storm system has plagued the lower 48 states for more than a week. It's finally finishing its last act as snow falls in New England. The multifaceted storm unloaded staggering amounts of snow and rain on its cross-country journey. Snow totals of several feet blanketed areas from California to the Great Lakes. Heavy rainfall, as much as 8 to 10 inches, was also common on the storm's south side. Perhaps most notably, the storm spawned a deadly barrage of tornadoes from Texas to Florida as its cold air collided with record warmth and high humidity. Such a large, long-lived and powerful storm put up some impressive statistics, which we summarize below. Nine days. The storm's first raindrops began in the Pacific Northwest on December the 8th and flakes will fly through Saturday and parts of England, an impressively long duration. The storm system had three phases as it moved across the nation. The disturbance that bombarded the west coast reformed into a new zone of low pressure over the plains, where it incited a blizzard. As that wound down, another low pressure center sprung up along the east coast, bringing a new round of snow and ice. A very energetic jet stream diving into the lower 48 states and lumbering eastward powered all three weathermakers. Eighty-one tornado reports. Tornadic activities spun up unusually far west for mid-December with reports in central Oklahoma on Monday evening. Tornadoes then swarmed across the south on Tuesday and Wednesday, affecting Texas, Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, and Florida. At least 38 tornadoes have been confirmed, with that number to climb as storm surveys are completed. Fifteen tornadoes have been classified as EF2s or higher on the 0 to 5 scale for twister intensity. The tornadoes killed three people in Louisiana. Remarkably, New Orleans was hit by a strong tornado for a second time in less than nine months. Eighteen states with at least a foot of snow. Locations in at least 18 states so far have reporting at least a foot of snow, and this number could grow as snow continues falling in the northeast. Totals up to nearly six feet were reported in California's Sierra Nevada. South Dakota's northern Black Hills, which is where that hotel is located, near Mount Rushmore, saw totals reach four feet. The highest totals in Nebraska quite close to the state's 24-hour state record, of 27 inches. Duluth, Minnesota, picked up nearly two feet. Before we list the highest snowfall reports from each state, where at least one location received a foot or more. Below, we list these. Sierra Tahoe, California, 70 inches. Cheyenne Crossings, South Dakota, 48 inches. Alta, Utah, 47 inches. Pearl Canyon, Nevada, 35 inches. Finland, Minnesota, that's well-named, 29 inches. Sun Valley, Idaho, 26 inches. Enderlin, North Dakota, 25 inches. Delta, Wisconsin, 23 inches. Hewlett, Wyoming, 26 inches. Cameron Pass, Colorado, 24 inches. Chaldron, Nebraska, 24 inches. Chiawella Mountain, Oregon, 22 inches. Milford, Montana, 20 inches. Land Grove, Vermont, 13 inches. Pisco, New York, 12 inches. Flagstaff, Arizona, 12 inches. 10 inches of rain. The storm started off by dumping 2 to 4 inches of rain in large zones of California. 9.7 inches recorded at Alamo Mountain, in the northeast, to the northeast of Santa Barbara. 9.3 inches fell at Chalk Peak to the east of Monterey. A zone of up to 10 inches of rain also fell near the Louisiana-Mississippi border. High end reports included 8.7 inches in Hawkshireville, Louisiana, 8.4 inches in Brudy, Mississippi. Heavy rain with widespread zones of 1 to 2 inches or more was common in the Midwest and Mid-Atlantic. Wind gusts of 114 mile an hour, A wind gust of 114 mile an hour was recorded at the top of Mammoth Mountain in California on the Sierra, Central Sierra Nevada, as the storm came ashore. Other peak wind gusts recorded in the Sierras included 93 miles an hour at Mill Canyon, California and 81 mile per hour at Peabody Mountain, Nevada. Several mountain locations in Southern California also clocked gusts of up to 90 miles an hour higher. In the Western Plains, gusts of at least 60 mile an hour, reserved in Northeast Colorado, Rapid City, South Dakota, 63 mile an hour, and Valentine, Nebraska, 63. Winds created snow drifts as high as six feet in spots. Rapid City saw blizzard conditions for nearly two straight days. Half a dozen closed interstates. Due to extreme snowfall rates, California's Interstate 80 was closed at time. Sunday through Donner Pass. Across the plains, stretches of Interstates 29, 76, and 90 were closed during the worst of the blizzards. Portions of Interstate 90 and Interstate 29 were still closed in South Dakota Friday afternoon. I'm glad we're not driving right now. Alice.
0: I am glad we're not going anywhere either. The next two articles, I'm going to read the headlines and a piece of one and then read the full article on the next. The first one says, U.S. Appeals Court says border expulsions under Title 42 can end December 21st. And there's a picture of migrants going through in a new mobile processing center, which was set up to close set up close to the Paso del Norte International Bridge on the U.S.-Mexico border in El Paso. And the quote is from Rudy Somoza, 36, who fled Nicaragua. And the question is, why is everyone angling, angling to reach the United States? Because this is a country that offers help where you can move your family ahead and earn a day's wages of honest work. In contrast, there's no law and order in my country. And the article related to that I'm going to read is, Will Immigration Surge as a Solemn Rule Ends? And this is by Rebecca Santana of the Associated Press, out of Washington. Since the pandemic began, the United States has been using a public health rule designed to limit the spread of disease to expel asylum seekers on the southern border. Title 42, as it's called, has been used more than 2.5 million times to expel migrants since March 2020, although that number includes people who repeatedly attempted to cross the border. But because of a judge's ruling starting next Wednesday, Immigration authorities can no longer use Title 42 to quickly expel prospective asylum seekers. The change comes as surging numbers of people are seeking to enter the country through the southern border and with Republicans' intent on making immigration a key issue when they take control of the House in January. A look at Title 42 and the potential impact of the rulings. 1. How it started In March 2020, the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention issued an order limiting migration across the southern and northern borders, saying it was necessary to reduce the spread of the coronavirus. The virus was ravaging the United States, schools were shutting down and hospitals filling up, and President Donald Trump was trying numerous ways to limit migration, his signature political issue. The order authorized Customs and Border Protection to immediately remove migrants, including people seeking asylum, to prevent the spread of the virus. The order said areas where migrants were held often weren't designed to quarantine people or allow for social distancing and could put border personnel and others at risk. The public health risks of inaction are stark, it said. The Biden administration continued the policy. While many Democrats pushed President Joe Biden to overturn Trump's anti-immigration measures, some, especially in border states, have advocated to keep Title 42, saying the U.S. is unprepared for an increase in asylum seekers. When the CDC moved to lift it earlier this year, moderate Democrats, including Senators Mark Kelly of Arizona and Raphael Warnock of Georgia, wanted it to stay. The Court Fight In 2021, a group representing immigrants who were denied the right to seek asylum sued to end the use of Title 42. As that case made its way through the courts, the CDC announced last April that the rule was no longer needed because vaccines and treatments were becoming much more widespread. That sparked Republican-leaning states to file their own lawsuit aimed at keeping Title 42 in place. The states argued that ending the rule would lead to a surge in migrants to their states that would, in turn, take a toll on their services. That argument found favor with a Trump-appointed judge in Louisiana who ordered keeping the restrictions in place. The judge found Biden's administration failed to follow administrative procedures requiring public notice and time to gather public comment on the plan to end the restrictions but that ruling was effectively blocked by another federal judge in a separate lawsuit in Washington. That judge, appointed by Democratic President Bill Clinton, ruled on November 15th that the Biden administration must lift the asylum restrictions by December 21st. That ruling, addressing broader questions about Title 42, took precedence over the Texas ruling, cheering immigration advocates. In a key development, the federal government did not appeal to keep the public health restrictions in place. Lee Gellerant, a lawyer for the American Civil Liberties Union, said, The court was correct to find that banning migrants while allowing the rest of the country to open up is unlawfully arbitrary, causes grave harm to desperate asylum seekers, and overrides the United States' legal commitments to to provide a safe haven for those fleeing persecution. But a group of conservative states is asking the courts to keep Title 42 in place. The appeal argues that the cancellation of Title 42 will cause an enormous disaster at the border, and the additional migrants will increase the state's cost for law enforcement, education, education and health care. A decision could come as early as Friday. Does Title 42 affect all asylum seekers? Not really. The Biden administration has not used it with children traveling alone, only single adults or families. And the ban has been unevenly enforced by nationality, falling largely on migrants from Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador, in addition to Mexicans, because Mexico allows them to be returned from the United States. Last month, Mexico began accepting Venezuelans, who expelled from the United States under Title 42, causing a sharp drop in Venezuelans seeking asylum at the U.S. border. Some other nationalities are less likely to be subject to Title 42 because cost or frayed relations with their home countries, Cuba, for example, make it difficult for the U.S. to send them back. People from these countries have become a growing presence at the border, confident they will be released in the United States to pursue their immigration cases. In October, Cubans were the second largest nationality at the border after Mexicans, followed by Venezuelans and Nicaraguans. What happens if Title 42 ends? If it goes away, asylum seekers will be interviewed by asylum officers who will determine if they have a credible fear of being prosecuted in their home or persecuted in their home countries. If they're found to face a credible threat, they can stay in the U.S until a final determination is made. That can take years. While some are detained while their asylum process plays out, the vast majority are freed into the United States with notices to appear in immigration court or report to immigration authorities. The Department of Homeland Security said in a memo this week that the current system is not designed to handle the current volume of migration nor the increased volume we expect over the coming weeks and months. It said it is preparing for a possible surge by cracking down on smuggling networks, speeding removal of those found to have little basis to stay in the U.S., and working with international partners to stem migration. It said it's also seeking more money from Congress. Republicans, who will control the House come January, are expected to make immigration a major issue. Already, there have been calls to impeach the Homeland Security Secretary, Alejandro Mayorkas. Some Democrats have also voiced concern about what happens when Title 42 goes away. In a letter to Biden this week, Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia and Representative Henry Hula of Texas joined two Texas Republicans, Senator John Cornian and Representative Tony Gonzalez, and asking Biden to keep Title 42 in place, saying there was a crisis at the southern border and that DHS hadn't presented a plan to maintain control there. Gary.
1: Well, skipping ahead now to page seven, the headline of this article reads January the 6th Committee Eyes Referring Criminal Charges for Trump. It's written by Farusha Amiri, Mary Clark Jelanek, and Michael Balsamo. the Associated Press. It reads, the House panel investigating January the 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol is considering recommending the Justice Department pursue an unprecedented criminal charge of insurrection and two other counts against former President Donald Trump. Besides insurrection, an uprising aiming to overthrow the government, the panel is also considering recommending prosecutors pursue charges for obstructing an official proceeding and conspiracy to defraud the United States, according to a person familiar with the matter who could not publicly discuss the private deliberations and spoke to the Associated Press on conditions of anonymity. The committee's deliberations were continuing late Friday, and no decisions were formalized Which specific charges the committee would refer to the Justice Department. The panel is to meet publicly Monday afternoon when any recommendation will be made public. The second person, familiar with the deliberations, who also could not publicly discuss details of the private deliberations, confirmed the committee was considering three charges. The panel's lawyers argued, according to the person, that those three criminal statutes were the strongest cases to make. The decision to issue referrals is not unexpected. Representative Liz Cheney, Republican of Wyoming, the vice chair of the committee, has for months been hinting at the sending to the Justice Department criminal referrals based upon the extensive evidence that the nine-member panel has gathered since it was formed in July of 2021. You may not send an armed mob to the Capitol. You may not sit for 187 minutes and refuse to stop the attack while it's underway. You may not send out a tweet that incites further violence, Cheney said about Trump on NBC's Meet the Press in October. So we've been very clear about a number of different criminal offenses that are likely at issue here, she said. The committee's chairman, Representative Benny Thompson, Democrat of Mississippi, detailed possible referrals last week as falling into a series of categories that include criminal and ethics violations, legal misconduct, and campaign finance violations. It would then fall to federal prosecutors to decide whether to pursue and in referrals for prosecution. While it doesn't carry any legal weight, recommendations by the committee would add to the political pressure of the Justice Department as it investigates Trump's actions. The gravest offense in constitutional terms is the attempt to overthrow a presidential election and bypass the congressional order, committee member Jamie Raskin, Democrat of Maryland, told reporters last week. Subsidiaries of all of that are a whole host of statutory offenses which support the gravity and magnitude of that violent assault on America. Raskin, along with Cheney, and Democratic Reps, Adam Schiff and Zo Lochman, both of California, comprised the subcommittee that drafted the referral recommendations and presented them to the larger group for consideration. Over the course of its investigation. The committee has made recommendations that several members of Trump's inner circle should be prosecuted for refusing to comply with congressional subpoenas. One for Steve Bannon has resulted in a conviction. Monday's session will also include a preview of the committee's final report, expected to be released on Wednesday. The panel will vote on adopting the official record, effectively authorizing the release of the report to the public. The eight-chapter report will include hundreds of pages of findings about the attack and Trump's actions and words, drawing on what the committee learned through its interviews with more than a thousand witnesses. Allison, we have about three minutes left.
0: Well, I found something that I think would be interesting. Angelina, oh, I have something that I think is interesting. Angelina Jolie leaves role with UN Refugee Agency. Angelina and the United Nations Refugee Agency are parting ways after more than two decades. She started working with the U.N. Refugee Agency in 2001 and was appointed its Special Envoy in 2012. In a joint statement issued Friday, the actress and the agency announced she was moving on from her role as the agency's Special Envoy to engage in a broader set of humanitarian and human rights issues. I will continue to do everything in my power in the years to come to support refugees and other displaced people, Jolie was quoted as saying in a joint statement, adding that she felt it was time to work differently by directly engaging with refugees and local organizations. Jolie first started working with the UN Refugee Agency in 2001 and was appointed its Special Envoy in 2012. The release described her as carrying out more than 60 field missions to bear witness to stories of suffering as well as hope and resilience, most recently traveling to Burka, Fasco. After a long and successful time with the UNHCR, I appreciate her desire to shift her engagement and support her decision. UN High Commissioner for Refugees, Filippo Grandi, was quoted as saying, I know the refugee cause will remain close to her heart, and I'm certain she will bring the same passion and attention to wider humanitarian portfolio. And then Trevor Noah is going for a three-repeat as a Grammy host. He's hosting the Grammy Awards in 2023, and he has left his post as host of The Daily Show on Comedy Central and has been asked to be Master of Ceremonies on February 5th and it'll be in Los Angeles again. And Beyonce will be in the ceremony, blah, blah, and Kelly Clarkson to host the NFL Honors Awards show uh, on February 9th in Phoenix, recognizing the league's best players, performers, and plays from the 2022 season. So, I think with that, Gary, anything else you want to say? No, other than
1: stay warm and